Hey, hey, everybody. If you're listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of this episode of The Shift with Doug McKenty. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing to the show in order to access the full feature-length versions of the podcast, as well as have access to the Members Forum, where we discuss potential topics and interviews and dive deep into the overall concept of The Shift. For only six bucks a month, not only do you get the full-length episodes, but also an opportunity to co-create with me, your host, Doug McKenty, the future of the show. Go to www.theshiftnow.com or patreon.com backslash the shift and sign up today in order to help make the shift possible. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. morning, noon, or night, whenever and wherever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I am your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This episode was recorded on October 1st, 2020. If you like what you're hearing, find out more about the show at The Shift with Doug McKenty on YouTube and Facebook, at McKenty on Twitter, or on the web at www.theshiftnow.com. Today, I welcome activist George Roche to the program. George is currently a leading member of the Ontario-Canada chapter of The Line, a movement dedicated to drawing healthy boundaries between individuals and an abusive state apparatus which has imposed draconian and unconstitutional lockdown measures upon the citizens of Ontario, despite the multitude of scientific, economic, and legal arguments which clearly limit the government's power to do so. His education includes a bachelor's degree from George Brown College and postgraduate work in psychology from Trent University, with a focus on addiction and family systems theory. After his university studies, George went on to engage communities across Canada by producing outdoor music and circus events. His unique skill set allows him to not only organize politically, but to understand how and when political organization is necessary to create a healthy boundary between the individual and the state. In other words, George Roche knows when to draw the line. Today on The Shift, we're going to engage in just this type of psychological analysis of the state and those who seem to so blindly acquiesce to the dictates of state power. In this important episode, George is going to explain why so many seem incapable of thinking clearly in the face of government dictates, and unable to engage in rational discourse with those who question the official narrative. When applied culturally, family systems theory provides the perfect paradigm to understand what is happening in the world around us. If we think of the government as an abusive father, and the uncritical reactions of most citizens as the result of a powerful trauma bond resulting in Stockholm Syndrome, current world events pertaining to excessive coronavirus lockdown measures begin to fall into place. Are we witnessing the result of decades of behavioral conditioning victimizing the masses into a state of cult-like obediency to a narcissistic master class? Is the mainstream media just a medium for gaslighting by a handful of sociopaths suffering from control issues? Stay tuned as George Roche and myself take a deep dive into this psychological analysis of the COVID-19 government lockdowns and find out how to heal yourself and others when confronted with emotional abuse on such a massive scale. Those with healthy psychologies know how to set emotional boundaries when confronted with such an abusive relationship. Those with the ability to see through the trauma bond know when to draw the line. Find out more about George and The Line at www.thelineinternational.com. I want to thank George Roche for agreeing to come on the show, 
and thank him for helping to make the shift. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this, the 54th episode of The Shift. I'm joined today by George Roche. We're going to have an interesting conversation today about why people, why it's so difficult to wake people up. Why can we not talk about so much of this information that we discuss on this program uh, without triggering people into some kind of a situation where suddenly you're just not allowed to talk about it anymore. And uh, I'm going to start out with two personal stories. One, when the whole COVID thing came out, uh, somebody started this uh, Mendocino County 5th District page on Facebook, and we're getting into it, and, and we're trying to figure out what's going on, and people are posting what Dr. Fauci is saying, and other people like myself are posting uh, some of the information that was coming out on the PCR tests and the case numbers and, and uh, the alternative view of what's happening. And eventually, some people started to notice that uh, some of their posts were, were going missing, and they were like, hey, you know who the moderator of this page what's going on, you know, my post is missing. And eventually this person finally just came out and said, those of you who post something that Dr. Fauci does not agree with, I'm going to eliminate your post because you're posting misinformation. And that was the end of it. It was like, I had to talk to the lady, you know, I said, I'm not going to participate in this page if you're going to censor alternative perspectives. And she said, you know, I hope the door doesn't hit you on the way out. She was just anyone that disagreed with her point of view the point of view of the, of the state uh, was just wrong and needed to be censored, and there was no debate. Um, and it just just crazy that we're we're in a situation where uh, some people, a certain segment of the population, simply can't view uh, information that doesn't uh, that doesn't agree with the state or corporate narrative that we're just being fed um, by the mainstream media. Uh, the second story I wanted to bring up: I'm at a friend's house just last week. I'm having a conversation with another friend of ours, and she's asking me about the PCR test. We start talking about uh, Carrie Mullis, the inventor of the PCR test, um, and uh, the conversation kind of went into the AIDS crisis, and I was discussing that uh, I've been having conversations on the podcast and on my other podcast, the Roundtable Discussions, with multiple scientists, and many of them are frustrated about the PCR tests and uh, saying that uh, Fauci is doing a very similar thing that he did with the AIDS crisis, where they also used the, the PCR test to diagnose uh, AIDS, finding a lot of people who had AIDS, turning it into a big crisis. Um, and so we were discussing the scientist's point of view. I wasn't even saying it was my point of view. I was just saying the people that I'm talking to were upset about with Fauci because of the way he was using the PCR test with AIDS, and now they're upset with him again because of the way that they're using these PCR tests to create this coronavirus pandemic right. when there's problems with the tests. Well, the guy from 10 feet away, he's talking to you know somebody else, and he turns to me and he says, you just can't talk about that here. You just can't talk about it. And we were like, I looked at my other friend. We were like, what? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Awkward. Like, not here. You can't talk about it here. And and it was like, okay, you know, and obviously this person got triggered into some place where I was doubting the official narrative and he couldn't handle it. So to discuss this issue uh, and what to do in these kinds of awkward situations and maybe potentially even how to discuss uh, issues that go against the, the corporate narrative, the, the corporate or government narrative with people that... Um, just can't hear it. I mean, is there is there a, a potential, a possibility to have a rational conversation with people that aren't unwilling to engage? And also uh, a lot of the psychological factors that are involved in terms of 
uh, why people get triggered into these states of mind where they suddenly they can't have reasonable conversations. You can't even show them uh, facts or data or, or scientists that disagree with the dominant paradigm. So uh, joining me today is George Roche. You want to tell people a little bit about your background, and then we'll get into this fascinating conversation. Thanks, Doug. Well, over the past 20 years, I have delved into the clinical psychology world, the world of child development, addiction, human behavior, disorders, interpersonal issues that plague various relationships. And we are certainly living in times where a lot of that is is required. Uh, people definitely need to understand how all of this can explain what we're experiencing, especially given the case where well-meaning therapists and people in the field are, are typically charged with the task of, of helping relationships, personal and professional relationships, understand that some of the behaviors that are ailing the relationship need to be gotten rid of. Change is required. And yet today, we are seeing almost an endorsement for these kinds of behaviors, where it's becoming the new farm for relating to people. However, it's very counterproductive to build a relationship when we have people who are attempting to will their own views on us. And when we go to rebut them, they shut us down. This is very characteristic of childhood and the rules that we've all been raised on, what Alice Miller, one of my favorite writers, refers to as the poisonous pedagogy. So exemplified in both of your stories is the control rule. Um, naturally, a cardinal rule of shame-based families is the desire to will control over another person's views or opinions, positions, and beliefs, uh, naturally because they're inconsistent with what we believe, or they believe rather. So certainly we're starting to see boundary violations with utter social impunity where people feel it's their right to condemn you for expressing any alternative views. Whether they're correct, accurate, right, or wrong, we are still seeing this energy that people are invested in. And the aim of that energy is to get rid of the discomfort that you are triggering in them. That's really what this is about. People are very uncomfortable today. So when you begin to bring up subject matter that is in conflict with what makes them feel comfortable, naturally you're going to get a lot of resistance. So t people are telling us now that they have found comfort in their discomfort. Will you just um, go ahead and give people a little bit more about your personal background just to establish your expertise here and then also discuss um, your political actions with the line up in Canada, just so people understand like where you're sitting with the COVID situation and, and, uh, and then the psychological backdrop and expertise that you bring to the, to the larger picture here. Certainly. So I'm the media relations director for The Line, and we've been hosting protests in Toronto every Saturday at 12 o'clock at Dundas Square. And the turnouts have grown tremendously. 
because people are trying to find some comfort in these groups and in places where they can be accepted for their awarenesses and their knowledge. As a person who has studied psychology for, uh, as I said, close to 20 years, I spent four and a half years uh, in university studying child development, studying mental disorders, various topics that to date, not a lot of people are thrilled at delving into right. because this requires them to begin to take a look at what they don't want to take a look at, which is themselves. So we're seeing a lot of talking going on on social media, significant disagreements. Uh, to be assertive is to be aggressive rather than to say, hey, I don't mind speaking with you, but I would like you to bring some science or some awareness to the conversation that's relevant. If you're afraid of our existence today, then maybe you need to take a break until you can rationally reconnect with the subject matter that we need to all debate today and be made aware of. Rather than attacking, I've always said to people where there's attacking, skills are lacking. So knowledge is required. Now, I don't want to judge anybody for that. Everybody has their own way of dealing with things. But what we're dealing with on a large scale right now is what I refer to as the problem of the wounded inner child. Today's traumas and today's events are triggering significant old and unresolved issues in many people who are finding it difficult to cope with current circumstances as well as past. But those two collace together. So we have a lot of surges of anger. We have a lot of fear, anxiousness, anxiety, and people can't make sense of that. The, the reason they can't make sense of that is simple. When one's mind is operating under the impact of repressed emotion, the one thing they can't do is think. They don't know what they need and they don't know what choices are. To throw expert information or expert critique at a person who's in that state of mind is ineffective. Mm -hmm. It won't be received. Because until the emotional content is resolved, the information cannot be stored in memory. So in reality, we have significant repression. The repression is a product of oppression. I can't remember who said it, but one of the most dangerous things today is the oppression of the child. That hasn't changed because that child is going to seek his or her freedom later in life. And sometimes in many inappropriate ways. We have a lot of addiction. We have a lot of abuse going on right now. Right. We have a lot of people who are dumping their frustrations on innocent chumps, innocent people, which is very uncomfortable to the people who actually want to know what's going on, who are actually willing to do the hard work necessary to acquire an understanding that makes sense to our current state of affairs. But unfortunately, people seem to be more engaged in argumentative styles of relating because it becomes, I'm sorry, rather, they are creating more of a competition. And right now there are people who prefer to be on a mission. So relationships by their very nature are not supposed to be competitive. They're supposed to be unified. Right. And right now what we're seeing is a conquer and divide strategy again. I think many people are behind in the information. Historically, 
we're dealing with many things from recent years that are now being visited upon the world. And people are trying to make sense of it because it's coming at them at a rate of speed that their minds aren't used to processing at. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, we've got so much stuff going on so quickly, and then uh, so much of the information is frightening. And so the fear is going to trigger uh, any any of those um, any of those psychological tr- triggers that put you back into that fear place if you were raised in, in a situation of oppression. Where I want to I want to try to make this connection actually between interpersonal relationships and then like our cultural situation because what I've discovered and in my previous conversations with you where we've been going is that you can actually analyze family psychology and then you can take that that kind of uh, practical everyday experience where you're raised in a family, you get married, you're raising children within the family unit, and then form these more archetypal concepts that occur there and apply them on a on a meta scale to a culture and say, you know, suddenly the government, for example, can become, I mean, they call it big brother for a reason. It, beca- it becomes the father figure. Um, a lot of, in our previous conversation, I think we described our relationship with the government in a lot of ways as a relationship with an abusive father. Um, so can you go into uh, some detail about this ability to extrapolate interpersonal dynamics and psychology within the family unit and then how we can apply this analysis on, on a natu- national or cultural level? Uh, absolutely. So when we look at family, we are looking at the ground that builds character, that formulates our personalities, that teaches us how to relate to ourselves and to others. Now, I spoke of the problem of the wounded inner child. Naturally, growing up in families, families are a social system. They have rules. They have roles that people play in them. And you learn your place in that family. In dysfunctional families, they orchestrate life to tell you how you should be. In functional families, they orchestrate life so that you get to become who you are. Now, the latter, if you are fortunate enough to grow up in a family where life was orchestrated so that you become who you are, then you have a solid sense of who you are and you have a solid sense of who you like to be around and who you attract into your life because you have been given the sustenance to determine that. Mm -hmm. That is not going to be the case when children are raised in a family they are told who they should be when parts of them are accepted to the exclusion of other parts they start to realize i have to behave a certain way here to be accepted so certain things about me are not okay i got to get rid of those i now become split so if my anger is not good my sadness is not good my thinking is not good where did you get an idea like that we don't think like that in this family uh you know I remember as a child saying one day I felt sad and they said, what's the matter with you? Why are you sad? What's there to be sad about? I'm I'm thinking, well, I I must be crazy. I could have sworn I was sad. Right. (laughs) 
Right. Your feelings aren't well, validated. Yeah. Right. You're yes, exactly. You you were made to be an invalid. So what happens to a person when they grow up with those kind of circumstances? Yeah. They start to realize that they must behave a certain way in order to be accepted in groups, whether that's at school, whether that's at work, whether that's at marriage, et cetera, et cetera. This wounded child is coming back because the child will remember. So what happens now? There are parents who didn't do the best they could. They love their children. They just didn't know enough. Then we have parents who whip and beat and, you know, get weapons of torture, belts, switches, uh, spoons, whatever. Right. You know, to discipline this rambunctious child. And actually what's being uh, taught to the child is, is, is how to be shut down. Now, those people are not doing the best that they could have done as parents. Thus, they have caused an alteration in their child's psyches and how that child and later the adult will view themselves in the world and in their relationships. Mm -hmm. Uh, These are the people who naturally seek out alternative methods of self-regulation. Addiction, being a pathological relationship, its purpose is to align current suffering in exact accordance with the past and to see to it that such past suffering remains inaccessible. I mentioned that a few people are thrilled at delving into their histories because there is shameful content there. Right. And it's very, very difficult. We have self-blame. We have people feeling, you know, criticized and attacked. These tapes that children learn in abusive families amount to 25,000 hours by the time a child is between five and seven years old, irrespective of the culture. So we have a lot of influence that is simply being recorded over the years that has been stored in this child's mind. And that is the hard drive by which is running the show. Right. Currently, we have significant amounts of age regression. People who are recapitulating childhood are reliving the rules to which they are raised and subjugating those they are interacting with to those rules, even though they hated them. Yeah. Even though they found back then they were trying to fight for their psychological lives, they are still subjugating people today on the very rules that they found they protested years ago. Right. Unless they heal from the damage, they're just going to repeat the cycle of violence. This is what we see. It's all it's the only template that they know. Mm-hmm. They're emulating their parents. They are still loyal to the rules that they were once raised on. And anybody who contests the family rule book is to be discarded, is to be debated, shamed, humiliated, contempted, rejected, right. insulted, and set aside. Let's talk a little bit about the public school system or the institutionalization of, of the individual, because you know all, almost all of us spend tens of thousands of hours in a public education facility, and you know we can go back to the foundations, at least here in the United States, you're probably familiar with B.F. Skinner or the concept of uh, operant behavioral conditioning, but this is actually the philosophy behind uh, a lot of what's going on in in public education. Um, And then, 
you know, just the concept of like you're talking about if a person's not free to discover themselves, well, we go into a public education situation where you're only allowed to regurgitate what the teacher is telling you. If you if you disagree with the teacher or have a different view of things, you're going to get an F on the test. You're going to get punished. Uh, and only if you regurgitate what you're taught, you're going to get an A. Um, so even if your family is relatively healthy, you may be in a traumatic situation throughout throughout this this public education situation that's still going to kind of train you into exactly this kind of psychology from my point of view I and mean, you can you can talk about this but you know so, this this type of psychology that's based on um you know reward punishment rather Conformity. than freedom right right and and then even in the social situation you think about like they're talking about how you learn how to work within the group you're thrown into a situation where you're only hanging out with people your own age. Some of the kids are the popular kids. Other kids are getting, you know, you're in this whole <laughs> milieu of, of emotional insanity <laughs> where the shame and the, and the other kids are going to shame you if you don't conform. Not, and that's, that's completely separate from the way the teachers are treating you if you don't conform, right? Well, you so, become an outcast. You're, 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 yeah. you're, yes, you were ostracized from the group. Right. Right. You're put out in the hallway. Right. You know, you're separated. You yeah. know, it's like Johnny gets asked to come up and solve the problem on the chalkboard. He can't do it. Johnny sits down. Susie, she gets it right. Everyone's clapping. How does right. Johnny feel? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, feel, he feels like a heel. Now, now whether, whether or not that was the intent, a child feels immediately um separate from the group yeah they don't have a sense of belonging a sense of belonging is vital that's why we have all these people jumping into groups right now because they want to find people who are like-minded that's not something that changes from childhood Ch children are attracted to children here's somebody who speaks my language operates at my level they instinctually know that the same thing happens with people who have the knowledge that we do <coughs> excuse me that we do we right. want to find people who are like-minded because that nurtures us that's affirming it's mirroring it gives us a sense of ourselves when people are gaslighting or disapproving of people they naturally come back trying to get more of what they're being denied especially if it's human sustenance mm -hmm. so so you know i've said many times before that incomplete people come out of wanting to get and complete people come out of wanting to give a sure sign of what you're dealing with. So we have a lot of what's called somnambulism going on. Right. Bulk of schools. Schools are notorious for this because schools demand compliance. They demand conformity. There's a curriculum. You are subjugated to that curriculum, which is put forth by our government, by our educational ministers. Mm-hmm. It's rarely ever questioned. We've seen all kinds of obsolete information winding up on the desks, uh, excuse me, on the desks of our children without any real analysis about the value of what we're teaching them. So we have a bunch of people who know generally the same stuff growing up in the same uh, country, the same community, the same town, state, etc. Right who generally are walking with the same information. There's nothing uncommon about it. There's nothing new. No new surprises can be right. expected. They've all congealed into their final selves. It's so funny that in a, in a, 
I mean, we hear so much about diversity in the culture today, and yet no one would doubt, it seems, or very few people are, are saying, yeah, the public education system needs to be wildly diverse. Different communities should be teaching different things. You know, everybody well, still wants everybody to learn the same thing without understanding that if we all just know the same stuff, you know, we're living in a really homogenous society. And then those people who go outside the box learn something different. We're outside the system then we're dealing with the same kind of uh, we're being ostracized from the group it's supposed to be the differences that make the difference right right <laughs> suddenly we're treated as flawed if we're different yeah yeah Which this is, is contradictory this is the strangest thing to me too because you know everybody's got to recognize that if, if humans are going to evolve if, if we're going to discover a better way if we're always getting better and better at, at being human then Somebody's got to come up with a new idea somewhere. And so I don't understand why we don't have a culture that praises the, the difference, you know, when somebody is different and strange and has new ideas. And instead, uh, this amazing pressure for conformity, um, which, uh, you know, we could even get in now to, you know, the hierarchy uh, of, the, of the patriarchal culture that we're existing in. But of course, uh, the, those on the top of the hierarchy are the ones that are benefiting from this homogeneity amongst the rest of us. You know, they're the ones that can drive social change uh, because the rest of us are scared to be different. Mm. Yes. I, you know, just uh, just to talk about uh, using education maybe as a control mechanism, uh, and it, it just simply benefits those at the top of the of the hierarchy rather than rather than the the communities and the and the localities and the individuals that are trying to change things to to improve their life situation. Well, it begs the question: How interested are we in teaching the best that we possibly can teach? How interested are we in doing the work necessary to acquire that knowledge so that we provide the best we can we can provide to our, our youth or our children? How much work is being done in that regard? Right. We're not paying enough attention to inform the public, to inform parents or families in general. That's why we have this problem of sleepwalking. Now, it's ingrained. People have asked me before, you know, why is it so difficult to get people to wake up and realize? Well, <clears throat> my usual response is <clears throat> it's not your job to wake anybody up. Mm -hmm. it's your job to work on your own A-game, to master your own history, and to look at how that impacts you in your reality. It's, it, it really is a lead by example. Nobody has the job of waking anybody up and when you realize how difficult it is to wake yourself up you realize what a task you have in front of you attempting to wake up anybody it's virtually impossible to do that kind of work right. we can encourage we can encourage the discouraged we can respect the disrespected but we cannot control the outcome of their lives and this is where that helplessness for people takes root they would love to be able to see everybody operating in harmony uh, singing from the same music sheet, if you will, all playing different instruments, but in the same key. Well, we're seeing a lot of sour notes today. Uh, the band is divided. There's so many different views being tossed around. And many of those we can trace right back to that person's 
upbringing. Mm-hmm. So when you talk of cultural, we're not seeing a unique understanding. We're seeing a repetition compulsion, the urge to repeat what one has been reared on. Remember, it's all they know. It's the only reference point that they can possibly make. So when you talk to somebody and you're able to determine that they are asleep, it's very interesting that a person who is awake knows what it's like to be asleep, Mm -hmm. especially if they've gone through the awakening process. Sure. A person who is asleep has no idea of what it is to be awake. Right. So there is a major imbalance there. People with a lot of the insights and knowledge that we speak of, whether it's culturally, it's about personality, it's about family, and all of those intricate uh, modes of, of, of interest, it's very difficult for people who are asleep to enter into a conversation with individuals who are aware of, of deeper meaning, who, who are able to assemble concepts quicker it makes other people feel somewhat inferior and i think we have to draw a delicate balance between how we share information and take note of how people are receiving it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's the best thing we can do for people who are asleep to offer them some comfort i don't think judging them or moralizing or contempting them or getting into arguments with them is the way to go but we do have to confront reality because confronting is an act of telling the truth. And to care enough to confront, which is a lot of work, is an act of love. So when we challenge people, we're actually giving them the kind of love they may not have ever received as a child. That is foreign. In other words, <clears throat> unfamiliar. Right, right. Is not familiar. I, I wasn't raised like that. The Hatfields versus the McCoys. They did it differently in the Smith's house. Right. The joke is they're doing something different over there. We have no idea what's going on. So 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 naturally there's a lot of different family systems. I mean, as children, we scan this stuff. We would go to people's houses and we would see that they did, did dinner differently. They celebrated Christmas or Easter differently or birthdays differently. We took notice of this stuff. The social the social uh, uh context is very much the same. How how are my friends getting spoken to by their parents? How are they being treated by their parents? Well, they don't do that in my house, you see. So we have a lot of different what people call norms, social norms. And naturally, everyone's normal is different. To harmonize that, in my opinion, requires people having access to the right information mm-hmm. and, and also demonstrating a willingness to distrust what they think they know and digest that new information. Well, that's just it. I mean, trying to show people information that they're not ready to hear, and then they just shut down. So let's let's get into that a little bit. I want to kind of go back to what you were talking about, that wounded inner child, and then this split that happens within people when they're confronted with uh, alternative points of view. Because you, you're, you're a kid, but you, you have these wounds because you're not allowed to really express yourself. You're not, your feelings aren't validated and you're having fears. Your parents have their own problems. Um, you're having so, these fears. So what happens? What happens to that mm-hmm. person? Yeah. Right? Well, let's go back into the earlier stages of childhood. You have nine to 18 months, which is infancy, 18 to 36 months, which is toddler. Those are extremely important phases of development. First of all, infancy is about trust. Yeah. 
So I believe it was Eric Erickson who found that by the time a child is two, their sense of trust must be greater than their sense of mistrust or it will pervade all subsequent relationships. It's going to play a key role. Naturally, we have bonding issues. We have anxiously attached. We have uh, 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 distancing. You know, some uh, children mm -hmm. feel that they're distant from their parents. They're still attached. So we have a lot of attachment disorder going on at that yeah. stage when trust is not established. So infancy, you see, when you're born, your public life and your and your personal, your private life are one and the same. But as this child goes through these stages of development and they start to experience wounds, what we call unmet needs. So, for instance, let's do some math. If there's eight needs that an infant must have met, but only four of them were met, they move on to the next stage of toddler, where maybe there's another eight needs. And I'm just being figurative. I'm not going to name all the needs. Maslow's hierarchy of needs is online. Anybody can get it, and everybody's human, so we all have generally the same needs. You can do an inventory of your own upbringing through some of this information. You can you can delve into this stuff. But for the purposes of our conversation, when an infant travels to toddler with four unmet needs, those are four wounds. They must be reconciled in order for completion mm -hmm. that have taken place. But if they move on and they go to toddler and then there's four more needs or wounds accumulated in their developmental phase. Now we have eight needs. We have 50% of an infant and a toddler. Now let's get into preschool. How's that gonna manifest in preschool? Difficulty working with others or completing assignments or sharing ideas, uh, not cooperating. We're seeing that today. Mm -hmm. So we can trace everyone's behaviors today that we can deem immature, um, socially inept, undeveloped, right back to the childhood climate. Like the rings of a tree, they all remain intact. And once you learn how to how to detect them, how to name them, then you're able to size up who you're speaking to. How plugged in are they? Are they right. aware of themselves and of others? So when we speak of consciousness, which is for Latin to know with awareness, we have two forms of birth. We have a physical birth. And by the time you're three years old, you've got to go through psychological birth. That is, I know who I am. I know who you are. I understand what you need. And I understand what I need. And I understand how to relate to you. I understand how to have empathy. I can be sympathetic towards you without taking control of your life. But I, I want you to be responsible for yourself. Now, how is a wounded, abused child to know any of that when their environments are either chaotic or neglectful. They're not getting that sustenance. That mm -hmm. toolbox, that toolbox is in dire need of replenishing later in life. So when we talk about waking people up, we're talking about completing childhood. They're both one and the same. So if we have a bunch of adult children running around today who have half a toolbox, which is resembling half of their needs being met then we have a half a person. They are asleep. Now, you can't go back to childhood and sit on daddy or mommy's lap to get those needs met. So now, the only way to do it is to find people 
who understand that this is why we have therapists mm -hmm. because in families and in general professional relationships, people are not going to want to play the role of therapist for you or to help you to complete, uh, the, you know, the, the process of your own developmental polarities, uh, at the workplace. It's just not something people are going to do, but people have to be aware of this. You can't know what you don't know. There's a significant amount of innocence here that must be recognized in all of this. Because people are making mistakes today that they probably would not make if they knew better. But they don't know better. So they're doing what they know how to do with the knowledge they've got. I've said there's a ton of innocence around this because people are generally doing the best they've known how to do with the knowledge that they've got. For instance, we wouldn't have staff attacking people who aren't wearing a mask if they were trained properly, if they knew the laws of human right <laughs> we wouldn't have that we wouldn't have all this arguing and, and fighting going on so when people have these unmet needs in childhood they're going to develop coping mechanisms right to deal and they're not healthy coping i mean this is what results in addiction issues or controlling behavior where they're trying to deal with the fact they have these unmet emotional needs and so they yes. use these coping mechanisms to to replace that they developed in, in childhood my parents aren't meeting this emotional need if i utilize this coping mechanism i can either manipulate the situation so i can get what i want or maybe i'm numbing the pain or you know all of these different coping mechanisms that are unhealthy and that are unconscious so you're not aware you're not using reason or logic or even you know or having an emotional awareness uh, to be able to deal with the situations you're you're kicking in to a subconscious coping mechanism that was developed in childhood in order to deal with the fact that you have these unmet needs. You want to get into that a well, little? Well, certainly. I mean, you're dealing with ingrainment. We said there's 25,000 hours in a child's mind that have been recorded and internalized from their environments, the way that they're spoken to from earlier on, right up to age five to seven. We have these parent tapes. So when you refer to coping mechanisms, most of which are really defenses, what we call ego defenses. Mm -hmm. But we have people that grow up in abusive homes that continue to pick one offender for their relationship after another. And they will swear to you every time that this time they're going to be lovely, caring, available human beings only to have another disaster right. that supports the ingrainment I speak of. So we're not going to get rid of this with skilled wording. So since we can't talk it out of ourselves or read it out of ourselves, I see a lot of codependents buy a lot of books because they're going to read themselves into recovery. You see, sure. It never works. It never works. As a matter of fact, it could be dangerous. You can deepen your wounds by having trigger uh, information, trigger these unresolved issues. Hmm. So we've got to do something about it. You know, healing requires action. Now, that's not going on with addiction. That's not going on with picking uh, a, a, an unhealthy relationship uh, repeatedly, obviously. That's not healing. That is coping. But it is a dysfunctional type of coping because people have learned ways of perpetuating their wounds rather than caring for them. Mm -hmm. And if we're per perpetuating our wounds, then we are simply repeating the very dysfunction to which we were raised. and that we protested against, disagreed with. However, repetition breeds retention. 
If you're exposed to an environment that is repeatedly disregarding your needs, over time, you will have learned, I am to disregard my needs of myself and of others. Right. That's the conditioning. That's what you're being taught. You're being taught that relationships are based on power, control, secrecy, fear, distance, distrust, the numbing of emotions, isolation, and shame. And this is how you honor your parents. And subsequent relationships. Mm-hmm. I mean, nothing faster than abuse does. Nothing. If we want a society of people who are dysfunctional, um, unavailable, where we find they have difficulty with their bonds, their relationships, then clearly we are repeating um, a modality of, of family that is highly undesirable, but it's very dangerous to structuring a society of functional people who are available to contribute to its growth and its health. So, right. And, and where I want to go with this is I want to try to understand why then what's going on when we're talking to someone and then all of a sudden they get triggered into a coping mechanism. I get that that's because we you know, we've opened that wound from some something that happened to them in their childhood, an, an unresolved issue, an, un, an unmet need. Uh, they've developed this coping mechanism. And then we go and let's say we talk about, I think the towers at 9-11 are falling at free fall speed. I don't, you know, scientifically that can't happen unless the structure underneath was taken out, right? <laughs> you know, like it, you can't fall at the speed. of that's, that's a great analogy. And, and you point it out to someone and they just go, well, you can't talk. That's crazy talk. The government told me that, you know, it, the building collapsed and it was the pancake theory and that's what's true. And, and they'll even say the scientists said that that's true. And like, as if no scientists disagreed with that, even though everybody knows you can't fall at freeze fall speed. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. It's, co- it's not even just science. It's just common sense, you know, um, but you bring it up and suddenly we've triggered some coping mechanism. Um, and, and it seems to me like maybe, you know, what are we talking about here? We're talking about maybe the unmet needs of childhood get projected onto the government and the government becomes the thing that that is filling, fulfilling those unmet needs. So then when you doubt what the government says, you instantly trigger this, what's called cognitive dissonance. Is, does that make sense to you? And, and maybe even explain cognitive dissonance a little deeper for the audience. Okay. We have significant gullibility. Um, historically, people will have disagreed with their governments more than agreed with them. Suddenly, in the current state of affairs with uh, COVID-19, we have more people believing in what their governments are doing than ever. Mm -hmm. This is very contrary to historical times. Usually, it's people confronting their governments. Right. I mean, it's supposed to be the government fearing the people, not the other way around. We put these people in their chairs. And currently, we have a bunch of them behaving as if they're the last ones that are going to be there. So we have a lot of gullibility to deal with. And when somebody with the real stuff, the real information, shows up to a person who's been believing something 
that we know is categorically false. Right. And we barge in with information that may be more powerful than what they've been believing. And it actually makes it to their brain. Uh, cognitive dissonance is the order of the day because they are receiving information that is truthful, which can trigger a depression. Uh, it, it, it can trigger isolation. It triggers people in having to re-examine what they thought was true. And again, the longer somebody has been believing a lie is the same length of time in many cases it takes to discard that information. Mm -hmm. Because remember, they were comfortable believing this. Right. But suddenly you have walked up or somebody has walked into their reality and said, no, 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 wait a minute. All bets are off. You got that wrong. Now that is received as an invitation for almost war, and it almost resembles war. You're seeing this online in unprecedented amounts today, where the division, the me versus you, the Hatfields versus the McCoys. Right. Remember, remember anything that the amygdala the memory sees as resembling the past response. So we do and say things that are irrelevant, that are ineffective, that didn't work back then at all. Uh -huh. How are they going to work today? So the reconciliation that people are trying to make falls through the cracks and cognitive dissonance <clears throat> is there to let any observer know that the person has been triggered. Right. This, I'm not ready to receive this. See, and again, um, you know, getting back to well-meaning therapists and, and clinicians in the field, they've got to touch these areas very gently. Because remember, we're sensitive to this. Why? Because we understand where its origins lay in childhood. You just can't walk up with skilled words and talk somebody out of mm -hmm. an abusive, dysfunctional family. That's not going to work. You know, it's so, and this is why I wanted to have, one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation, because it's so easy to get angry. Like I, I almost did get angry <laughs> and, and even I, I actually got, my own anxiety got triggered by the experience with this guy uh, who shut me down because I was like, man, that guy doesn't have the right to shut me down like this. And I'm pissed off about it. And you know, I could have stood up to him, but I have to, I have to take a step back and go, this is not going to help. If I get into a fight, this guy has been triggered into a fight or flight mode. He's in a battle. He's not thinking rationally. And there's nothing I can say to get him to go back into thinking rationally. And I really actually, to, I need to have compassion, now, not anger. If I have an anger response, we're just in a fight, you know, a fight to the death. Well, your example exemplifies <laughs> what I just said a moment ago. Mm -hmm. When the amygdala sees anything that resembles the past, guides the response. Yeah. You notice how you just said, uh, this guy triggered me. He triggered my anger. Right. You see, right. our memories know the true score. Yeah. It's, it's all in there. It's all in there, right? You've recorded. You're recorded. You've all, it's all in there. It doesn't get erased. It, 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 it's a program. And interesting how you say, I got angry. Well, well yeah, because remember, anger is always about the past. Yeah, right. 
Fear is about the future. Anger is about the past. So, and the, the the wonderful thing here is, is that anger and love come from the same wellsprings of the human being. They're both life preserving. So mm-hmm. here you are in this situation, you're trying to preserve yourself, you know, maybe afterwards you go back after the, the trigger's over and you realize, oh gosh, you know, maybe I could have had a little more compassion, but in the moment that guy triggered me. So difficult. <laughs> right back. Yeah. We go right back to the earliest of times when that anger was first recorded. We don't even remember the event that caused it. Yeah, right. We store memory with all five senses. So whatever is not consciously acted out is indirectly acted out, thus indirectly discovered. So we need a trigger. We need a situation that reminds us of the past. That's how we discover it. Mm -hmm. Remember, when we send children to therapy who are non-logical and who can't speak, they're still living in the world of felt thought. We give them dolls to play with. Because the only thing recorded in their physical interactions with these dolls is their environment. There's nothing inauthentic about that. Mm -hmm. The child knows the true score. They're going to project that experience onto the dolls. That's how science was able to determine behaviorally what was happening to that child in their environments, how they were being raised, spoken to, how they were loved. So... I go back to what I said. When you see a child getting angry, listen, they're giving it to you. They're not asking for your permission. Are right. you okay if I'm angry with you? Yeah, yeah. You know, we have a lot of chameleons today, right? You know, sign a contract. You don't get angry at me. Kids don't do that. They're letting you have it in the moment because they know when you violate their rule book, their human rule book, you're getting it. Whether you like it or not, it could mm-hmm. be, and it doesn't matter where it is. Nature provides these kids a very loud voice of disapproval. And now those kids, though, are about to get shut down. What we where is the oppression, the oppressive quality. This is what we're experiencing today. We have people today that are adults who are still afraid to show up to our protests because they have a specter of fear or anxiousness that someone's going to show up and give them heck for it. Right. They're about to be punished. You see? Absolutely. There's something, you know, the voices, there's something wrong here. I'm not, I'm doing something wrong. They may not be able to identify, but this, the hunters coming and they're going to find out that you're doing something wrong. See, that is what I call fighting the ghosts of mom and dad, but they're experiencing their parents in these other authorities authority figures, whether it's the police, whether it's the judge, whether it's your prime minister, they're experiencing their authority figures, their original source figures are being experienced in these people with whom right. they are going to give them trouble. Punishment. Is and so these current, these current authority figures can actually manipulate people based on the trauma experiences from childhood, right? I mean, Absolutely. they're taking advantage of the fact that people were weakened in childhood to have power over you now <laughs> because you're subconsciously conditioned already to be frightened of the authority figure and do what you're told. Exploitation. Yeah, right. You're being exploited. Yes, yes. Come on, there's no secret in the field. It may be uncommon knowledge to the average person who probably hasn't studied much of this, but it is a very common understanding within the field. Therapists know when you're in an age regression. Yeah. We know when 
you are have been triggered and it's it's a it's a family upbringing related matter that's not hard once you know what to look for it's pretty simple again i go back to people who continue to pick people who remind them of their parents whether they were offenders or whether they were very loving and supportive well welcoming parents who orchestrated life so you got to grow up to be who you were I, I, I did I did a whole bunch of family system seminars over the years. I worked with youth and stuff. And I said, you know, I'm sorry, people would say to me, gosh, I've been, you know, I've been married to my wife for 25 years. I, I feel like I've known her all my life. Well, yeah, you picked your mother. Right. <laughs> for for <laughs> better or worse. <laughs> for better or for worse. Yeah, I yeah. feel like, you know, I've known my husband forever. Yes, you picked your father. <laughs> right, right. That's why you feel like you've known them forever because we're supposed to pick people who remind us of our parents. Yeah. 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 And either, it either goes both ways. Mm -hmm. It goes both ways. You, 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 you pick a loving, supportive uh, partner because your parents were loving and supportive. So that's family. That's okay. That's approved. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to keep all the good ones at arm's length. If I was abused, and let them in the door because that's family or two. That's what I equated love with. Right. So you that's have, the scariest thing I know about. You have to go through this healing process in order to close the cycle of violence. And the healing process takes time and it takes this awareness. You, you have to make the subconscious conscious and then and then become aware of what's going on. And then you have more personal power to deal with uh creating better boundaries and not perpetuating this this cycle of violence. Correct, but we've got to name the content. Mm -hmm. In order to make something conscious, it's got to have a name. Right. And that's the problem we have. Parents weren't sitting there naming behavior. This is a belt we're going to beat you with it. Uh, you know, they're not they're just doing it. Okay? They're just yeah. doing it. Right. There, there's no names. You see, you don't know you have this problem until you get into a relationship, uh, you know, codependency, uh, neurosis, mm -hmm. uh, clinical mm -hmm. depressions, personality disorders. You don't know you have these problems until you get into a relationship because the marriage or the, the coupling is going to trigger these issues. And that's the opportunity that is presented to people to get to work on this stuff. Because remember, what heals abandonment, trauma, or neglect, or abuse? And again, all of those are, are used synonymously to describe the environments of various people who are seeking to heal. Um, if you don't do the work, you cannot take somebody where you haven't been. You can't give what you have not got. So doing the work is essential, but the purpose of a loving, healthy relationship is to heal child wounds and abandonment trauma which means we get a different response this time around mm -hmm. right don't repeat it we get a different response this time around and if you're fortunate enough to find somebody who understands what you went through at some deep level then you are truly blessed with a loving relationship somebody who will stick by you uh, unconditionally and give you that positive that you failed to receive as a fan of your family, you have a great chance at recovering the parts of you that have laid dormant that you have split off and disowned for many years in the service of gaining approval. Mm -hmm. What we're using our addictions to manage today. 
Well, so now let's let's continue to extrapolate this out to our relationship with the the authority figure. In the case of the government, it can be described as a, a patriarchal, hierarchical authority figure. Where if we're raised in a, an environment where our emotional needs are not met, then we develop an attachment with this authority figure, the government, who's now going to meet our needs. Is this is this an accurate depiction? We become emotionally attached to this hierarchy. And the authority figures in the hierarchy are meeting our needs, so we're gonna we're gonna do we're gonna believe what they tell us, and we're gonna do what they say because theoretically, because they're the ones. I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that right. I'm gonna answer that in the context of what's going on today, specifically today. Yeah, let's do it because there are various examples that we can decode and define, but currently today, because people are afraid you know, they're going to basically take what they can get. Today, what we're seeing resembles significant Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. Where where people, you know, at one point may have resisted their captors, have resisted the offender, but as they spend more time getting conditioned by these people, they start to feel a bond that dare I say, the awake person wouldn't even consider Mm -hmm. entering into Mm -hmm. a contract that one wouldn't even read. However, once again, we look back at the continuum and we look back, as I refer to the rings of the tree, we trace this right back to childhood. Remember, a child fears losing their parents' love. They cannot hate them. Thus, they are confronted by a tormentor that they love. Now, what are we seeing today? We're seeing people who are believing in what their governments are doing, despite obvious evidence to the contrary. Mm -hmm. Denial is not a river in Egypt. It's an ego defense. Right. When life situations become intolerable and painful and unacceptable, denial comes in like a mirage in the desert and there's all kinds of forms of denial like minimizing and theorizing and analyzing dissociating uh distractor addiction staying busy all the time so you don't get that feedback don't want to know i don't want to know anything contrary to what i believe because i'm comfortable right now actually that's finding comfort in your discomfort so they're relating to their governments in a very similar way that they did their parents in other words They're allowing them to get away with some of the violations that are so apparent to many of us. And yet the sleepwalker would accept them for what they are at face value. Question nothing, say nothing, because I'm in survival mode. Yeah, it's interesting uh, hearing what you're talking about in terms of the difference between I mean, we're using these terms awake and asleep, and, and I want to get into this, and I, because I almost, I mean, I understand why we use those terms, but I also understand, like, if I'm not, uh, say, a conspiracy theorist, or if I am trusting my government right now, I, I'm not going to like being called asleep, right? <laughs> so so I, I just want to try to try to kind of explore these ideas, and, I, and I'm going to, and what I, I think I'm going to do is I'm just going to tell, like, my own personal story. Like, I've already mentioned 9-11. Like, we clearly, at this phase in, in my life, I can look at those buildings and go, they fell at the speed of gravity. There's no way that they could have done that unless the structure underneath was was 
you know, destroyed. <laughs> you know, that's right. just common sense. The I foundation. I see that now. I see when I look at a picture of the Pentagon, there's a hole in the side of the building and there's no plane. I can see there's no plane there, clearly. But most people, even though they can't see a plane there, I know they can't see a plane. <laughs> they believe that a plane hit that building. I mean, you know, and it's like, okay. Um, but having said that, you know, it took me three years of, of consistent research on the internet before I was convinced, right? It took me years <laughs> because like you said, it, it, you know, it's this long process of, of like coming to the conclusion that like, wait a minute, I can't trust this authority figure. They're lying to me. You know, they're taking advantage of this trauma bond that I have with them. And so it's, it's actually a long process, and I think it's, it depends on the individual, certainly. And, you know, some people can see it right away. Uh, other people, it, takes them, it could take them a lifetime to, to uh, break the trauma bond, like you're talking about, this Stockholm Syndrome that so many have with the authority, that what I, what I like to call the, the corporate government complex uh, that is at the top of this hierarchy of authority that so many people want to cling to. Um, yeah. Well, again, you're you're you know you're jumping into cognitive dissonance. Right. Uh, you're talking about positive and negative hallucinations. You know, I, I, I'm in this current situation here right now, so I'm going to positively hallucinate and experience myself on the golf course to get right. out of where I am today, to get out of the situation. Yeah, I got to imagine. I'm on the golf course. See, we have to be able to will and unwill fantasy. When a person is asleep, they live by the fantasy. Mm. To accept things for what they are, me, it starts with you have to accept who you are in the circumstance. And when we talk about self-acceptance, we're talking about living in reality. Remember, people ignore much reality, especially painful reality. So seeking alternative forms of comfort for coping and, and management is, is very much a common practice for people who just don't want to accept what's really going on. Or they're gullible and they buy excuses, you know, uh, uh, you know, dad's lying on the deck because he has a bad back. Mom doesn't say, you know, mom doesn't say he's an alcoholic and he's passed out. No, he's just lying on the deck because he's got right. a bad back. Yeah. And we're going to, and we're going to take that. And that's good. We don't question anything. Right. You know, so how does that manifest in today? Well, the, you know, the, the, the government tells us that uh, we, we need to have these vaccines um, you know, and because they said it, they're the experts and why, why, you know, why would any person argue with that? Why would you argue with that? The government said it, their experts have educated them on what they need to tell us. Right. You take that to face value. Why are you questioning that? Why are you rocking the boat? Well, I mean, and it's so funny that this is the argument, right? That, well, the government has the experts. This is science. You know, and so the government's telling me what their experts are saying, and they they must be working for the good of all the people, despite evidence to the contrary that they're only working for the good of the very wealthy at the top of the hierarchy that are controlling the government. Mm -hmm. um, and they won't see that evidence. They believe that the the government and the authority figure must be good, and they're following only the most expert advice. So when I show up with other experts, 
they won't listen to those other experts. And they and you know, it's even what's fascinating to me is that they can't they can't comprehend that experts can disagree. And then I can agree with experts that disagree with the government experts. It's like the government experts are telling the truth and that's final. And if you disagree, then you're wrong. And if you disagree, you even trigger this cognitive dissonance and you're no longer having a rational conversation with the person who's triggered. It's fascinating. <laughs> it is fascinating. People, in order for anyone to grow, we have to rely on disagreement. Now, right. The problem we have right now is people, in, in, in a general sense, don't know how to resolve conflict. Of course, two different, you know, people uh, from two different family systems, you know, remember, you're as different as a thumbprint. We'll go back millions of years ago. We're never going to find you again. You're the only one that there ever was. You're the only one that will ever will be. So naturally, we've got to have a way of resolving conflict. But. What we see now is we don't see people attempting to resolve differences or conflict. We see control mechanisms. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. This is a huge problem. <laughs> it, 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 right. I mean, because, because you see, when people want to control the narrative or control what other people say, generally what they're telling you is, I want you to take care of how I feel about matters, that you are responsible for how my life is going. And when you challenge that, right, you, you, you are in violation of my rule book, a rule book you have ever read. Stuff happens in the moment. There's no, you know, usually when there is a, 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 an agreement, you know, both parties know going in what is expected of them. This is not the case with spontaneous debate. If everybody had internalized a rule book that's fair and balanced and is equal and applicable to both sides, I mean, when you watch a hockey game or a soccer game, you're hoping that the ref is going to ascribe to both teams. Right. Rule book. Yeah, I mean, theoretically... It's like you're dealing with two different things I'm thinking here, which is funny. I mean, one is that everybody's feelings have to be validated. But two, the, the rule book, at least in a debate, can be, you know, in terms of understanding logical fallacies and trying to have a reasonable discussion. Like, hey, I'm having, we're having a conversation and A equals B, you know, A plus B equals C, 2 plus 2 equals 4, and let's just follow each other's line of thought. And even if we disagree at the end of it, at least we've really explained how we feel to each other in a comprehensive way, according to a, a playbook, this playbook that we could call reason or logic, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but people, when they get triggered, man, both of those things are out the window. They're not validating your feelings at all. They don't care. And they can't follow uh, along any kind of rational, you know, thinking that's going on. And, and not in, they're not engaging in any kind of debate. They're just using coping mechanisms, be they outright aggressive or passive aggressive. Um, to avoid the situation, essentially, to avoid having to deal with information that they can't process. The rules that create this kind of dysfunction, there's no shortage of writing about them. Bowen has written about them, uh, Bradshaw, Alice Miller, uh, Virginia Satir. Mm -hmm. um, there is significant information. In my opinion, in my opinion, if people didn't want to go to the therapist's office to deal with their issues, there's enough information to compel them in that direction available today. Uh, there is so much literature that can help people to understand with a healthy sense of shame, without personal blame, 
self-blame or guilting others and shaming other people the same way they were as children that led to their need for this information in the first place. But the rules of control, the no listen, the no talk, the no feel, the unreliability, you know, keep the same fights going for many, many years without any real resolution. And then the incompletion rules where we don't get our needs met mm-hmm. are predominant even today. So I say again, control, no listen, no talk, no feel, unreliability and incompletion rules are the ingredients for dysfunction. Remember, I said that people who grow up in dysfunctional or abusive homes are being taught that relationships, relationships, and a root word of relate, um, are you're, you're being taught that power control, secrecy, fear, fear, distance, distrust, the numbing of emotions, isolation, and shame are how you manage a relationship. Mm-hmm. When you break those down, look at all of those elements, and they are prevalent more so today because we have significant fear going on. Sure. What, false evidence appearing real. People reacting to what isn't true to the exclusion of what is. Mm-hmm. Absolutizing. Not, you know, yes, it is. No, it's black and it's white. See, see there's no growing there. The, the the opposite the, the mystified opposite of generativity is stagnation. If you're not willing to challenge your own information, yeah, then you have bought a narrative that could be very unhealthy for you, hook, line, and sinker. And this is what we have got to extricate people's minds from, and and from uh, uh, and from encouraging them to do. It's all the dis column. It's discouragement. It's disrespect, disillusionment, dis, dis, dis. We've got to remove the dis, the disorganized thinking, the disorganized approach to how we bring ourselves to these kinds of issues, especially today, because we're hearing so many confusing things that don't make a lot of sense. They're Mm -hmm. very inconsistent with what we expect is normal. I don't believe any person on the planet woke up in March or or April and thought their worlds, their jobs, their lives, their families, their economies were about to be turned upside down. Not one person woke up with that fantasy, but it's here. It's here in a very real sense. The people behind the scenes are no longer hiding it. They're no longer deceive us. That's clear. They're now using force. They're now breaking down the very social fabric of a functional society, at least as functional as we can get, more so. We were moving along pretty good for a little while. And suddenly now it's all collapsed. And people are trying to make sense out of all that in six short months. Mm -hmm. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Right. And social media is hardly a comforting place for anybody to get to work on some of this stuff, as probably as uh, 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 especially rather the the wounded inner child issues, because again we're talking about completion, we're talking about waking people up. That's that's a personal journey, right? Waking people up. The best chance we have of waking anybody up is working on our own A games, right? Doing the work that we need to do, leading by the example. Because the possibility of their taking notice of that has a, has a better outcome attached to it than deliberately trying to wake somebody up. Right. 
Yeah, as soon as you trigger the cognitive dissonance, you're toast. And also, whether if yeah. somebody doesn't choose to heal, they're not going to heal. They have to make that choice for themselves. And so we have to actually, you know, continue to work on ourselves so we don't get triggered into trying to be controlling on them, you know, be imposing on people that that don't understand our perspectives or won't listen to our point of view we become controllers if if we let them trigger us into this mindset where it's like, why are you? Well, this is true. I'm, and you know, <laughs> oftentimes I've had people say to me, I feel like a rat deserting a sinking ship. I want to be able to help this person. I yeah. want to be able to, to clue this person in. Right. And, and sometimes you, you, you just have to allow yourself to feel the helplessness engendered in those situations because there's nothing you can do yeah. to affect just like having an addict in your family where you have until they choose to not be an addict until they choose to want to heal they're going to keep up you know with the with the pathological behavior because it's their coping mechanism and you know you can't you have to look after yourself you've got to set limits you've got to protect yourself you've got to be able to say to these people and, and consequences i remember there was a show on one time i think it was called intervention i kind of like that show because they showed in in a real sense how an intervention is valuable to a person's life that there's an ultimatum now you have come way too far mm-hmm. you're hurting yourself to the point where people who love you are terrified for you and it's interrupting our lives right so now now it's sink or swim if you're not coming with us then you're not with us and we're not here to support you because your recklessness, your dysfunctional conduct is causing a problem for everyone now. Because remember, in families, there's always an emotional contagion. Like everyone gets it. Like the cold that shows up at the front door. Right. Johnny gets it. Before you know it leaves the front door, everyone has to get it first. And that's very much the same thing with dysfunction and dysfunctional social uh, socialization. Everybody is affected by the system that they are in. And yet we have all of these separate people that are individuals, but they don't get to become individuals because the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. If there's five people in the family and you have five problems, uh, each individual is, is dealing with their own problem, a problematic situation, you have 25 people responding. To one individual. You see, the right. whole is yeah. greater than the sum of its parts. We've got to do the math. I say to people, do the math. You have five people, five problems. Five times five is 25. You see, you're multiplying the issues. And there's and there's no way around that math. Mm-hmm. It's emotional contagion. Everyone's going to get it. So it's very important that people do their own work least they inadvertently dump it on innocent others, project it onto innocent others, or blame innocent others for the right. condition they are in. Well, and this projection is something that often happens to to people using this term who are awake, for lack of a better term, because you're trying to explain some facts to I mean, I you know, I get treated like I'm just a crazy person. <laughs> When I'm trying to have a rational conversation and show some empirical data to someone and then and then here's my critical thinking that I've applied to this, they can't pay attention to it and they pretend like I'm I'm crazy, you know, or I'm irrational. 
Um, and yeah. I, you know, I'm happy to be irrational. Show me where my logic is flawed. You know, please help me out here. I'm just trying to figure things out. Um, but, but they're not engaging. Um, I'd like to kind of uh, segue here. Maybe we got another half hour or so, and I really wanted to talk about the the pathology of the system and get into the bigger picture of how, like, what is the government and why are so many people sucked in to this abusive relationship with it to the point that they can't, you know, they, they're not really thinking for themselves. They, they've just given up their individuality uh, into thinking like whatever the government says their experts believe. Uh, pretending like, you know, science has proven the government tells me this scientist says this, uh, the government must know this is the consensus of all scientists, uh, and science says this, so all rational people will think this. I mean, this is a kind of a argument that I get all the time from, from a lot of people who, instead of looking at the science for themselves or comparing the science from, of the government to the science of other people, um, and and I and I want to maybe start off with this one, and we'll, we can go back to talking about the coronavirus. And because you had mentioned a few minutes ago about fear, um, and how fear is going to naturally trigger almost everybody into into whatever trauma, uh, Trump. You know, they're going to remember the trauma that they had as a child, the um, the needs that were not met, and then they're going to attach themselves, in many cases, to the government which they now perceive this authority is fulfilling those needs that were unmet in their childhood. And so with coronavirus, the first thing the, and the first red flag for me and a lot of other people out there who are trying to think for themselves and seeing what they're being presented with was when the government first came out and then the mainstream media. And this is another thing we can touch on because the mainstream media, I think, is way more controlled than most people realize. They can't believe that it's so controlled. Like, how is it that the government can control all this information? It's 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 boggles people's minds. Um, but we'll get into this. But the first thing that happened was they come out with the case fatality rate of COVID. They say it's three percent. Three percent of the cases are dying. And so, oh my God, you know, well, what's the case fatality rate of the flu? They say, well, that's 0.1%. So, you know, COVID is 300% or whatever worse than the flu and everybody's, you know, scared out of their mind. So this put people in an initial fear state. Now, the 0.1% actually wasn't the case fatality rate for the flu. The case fatality rate for the flu is much higher than that. 0.1% is the is the infection fatality rate for the flu. So here we have all of these journalists all at one time confusing the case fatality rate with the infection fatality rate and comparing apples to oranges to make COVID look way, way worse than it is and scaring the bejesus out of everyone. And because that was pushed all across the board, hundreds, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of people saw this and said, my God, COVID is, is hundreds of times worse than the flu. How is it that the mainstream media, first of all, can do this? Like, what is it about the hierarchical system or what's going on that so many people are so confused that these journalists aren't doing their jobs? <laughs> you know, how is, this, how is the authority figure so powerful that it can have this level of control, I guess? It's just shocking that <clears throat> this, this level of misinformation, I mean, even with 9-11, right? I mean, we're sitting here having a conversation about 9-11. 
not one journalist in the mainstream media could figure out that there's a hole in the Pentagon that's way too small for an airplane and there's no airplane parts. There's no wings. There's no engines. There's nothing. You know, and nobody's going to question that. How is that even possible that there could be like a mass delusion on that level? And, and you know, I guess where I'm going with this is to talk about, you were talking on the phone with me a, a bit ago about the, the sort of narcissistic tendencies of the authority figure. We're getting into this whole other, like, what is the authority? Why is it so powerful? Okay. And how can it convince so many people uh, that disinformation? That there's a lot, there's a lot there to un there's a lot there to unpack. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about quickly, or I, I, I'll comment on what makes us similar across the board. All players, everybody involved, even though they have different roles and different motivations and purposes involved, they are. Th there is one element that keeps us all uh, on the same page here. In terms of why we do what we do and its effect, whether it's the government, whether it's the media, whether it's the listener, you, me, our friends, those we connect with on Facebook, the one emotion that defines all of us in our roles is fear. You can get anybody to do what you want them to do by scaring as you say the bejesus out of them <laughs> you want conformity scare the heck out of them so here i'll, I'll comment on the media because I've, I've i've said even myself i've, I've posted that and i've been very outspoken about this now i've ever ever since i've uncovered some inc incredible information of my own to corroborate my own position, having done my own work, mm -hmm. is that is that the media is a major part of the virus, probably a larger virus than the one they're expecting us to believe is floating around out there, uh, inundating our hospitals that aren't inundated, killing people that aren't dying from said disease, and inflating numbers and making alterations as proven by various independent media sources who obviously aren't popular. This is not a popularity contest anymore. Mm -hmm. This is not about who likes us or hates us anymore. This is about if we're going to survive, it's important that we know what we're talking about fearlessly. Without the fear, the false evidence appearing real that I spoke of before and to be fearless means that you trust who you are and what you know not for codependent wounded adult children who came from dysfunctional families where they were disapproved of shamed humiliated played with and ignored like dolls it's not for it's not for them this is why i say it's impossible to wake somebody up because mm. that's a lot in and of itself to unpack in a, a, a short conversation we aren't talking about picking strawberries here we're talking about putting lives at risk people's uh, careers at risk we have whole industries that have collapsed musicians out of work technical people incredible artists out of work everybody is struggling 
on the backs of the fear that has been bestowed upon us. This is not something we chose. Nobody has chosen this. I don't care what walk of life you're from. You came, sorry, you came, you were brought into this against your will. And now, in addition to that, you've got to figure out why all that is. And we're not getting the answers that we need. All right. And uh, do you have a website that you want people to go to to find out more information or, or find out uh, where to get more information about the line and these rallies? www.thelineinternational.com and The Line Canada. Catch us on Facebook at The Line International, The Line Canada. Um, any comments or requests for interviews or information about The Line, get us at media at thelineinternational.com. All right. Very good, George. And thank you so much for being on the program. I'll just take a second to say that I have been your host. My name is Doug McKenty. You're listening to The Shift with Doug McKenty. I am on YouTube and Twitter at D. McKenty. Uh, excuse me. I'm on YouTube and Facebook at D. McKenty on Twitter. And my website is www.theshiftnow.com. So you can check out a lot of my other work there as well. So thanks to everyone for listening. And thanks again, George, for being on the program. I really appreciate it. This is a super huge issue. Very important for people to understand how this psychology works. It's a real driver of what's going on in our culture, um, just in terms of our individual relationship with the culture, but also the culture's relationship with us, right? It's, it's human psychology. And to do this analysis, both on that personal level and on the level of how the system operates, it's just an awareness that people, I mean, it's the first level of awareness, right? Before people can choose to heal themselves and, uh, and discover the kind of personal empowerment that comes with that. So thanks for explaining all of this to people and having this conversation with me. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Yeah. Thanks very much, Doug. And remember, if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeating it. I hear that. All right. Thanks again, George. Take care. Thanks a million. Bye. Well, all right, ladies and gentlemen, another fantastic interview here on The Shift with George Roche. Um, he actually got in touch with me because he saw one of the roundtable discussions that I did between uh, Rocco Galati and uh, Dolores Cahill just discussing political organization between Canada and Ireland, international political organization around the coronavirus lockdowns. He gave me a call, and we just had this fantastic conversation. It's so rare that I find somebody that wants to go into the psychology of all of this. We probably talked for two hours, could have been its own podcast over the phone, and so I invited him on the show to have this conversation because it's so important. Those stories that I told at the beginning of the episode uh, are just true stories, and I'm sure a lot of you have the similar stories where you go to a friend or a family member or a neighbor, uh, you try to explain to them why you're frustrated with the coronavirus lockdowns, how you distrust uh, the statistics coming from the authorities, maybe you try to explain to them how the PCR tests work, uh, why you're distrusting all of these positive cases, why you're looking for more accurate data, why you distrust uh, the government sources, and the person just ignores you or says, I don't want to talk about it, or things instantly feel uncomfortable. These are all red flags uh, of a toxic emotional relationship. And the more that we understand the psychology behind this, the more equipped we can be to deal with those friends and family members that simply do not want to listen to our point of view. They think that we're crazy. They call us names. They talk about us behind our backs. Oh, you crazy conspiracy theorists. All classic gaslighting terms. 
Uh, and no matter how hard you try, they won't look at the information that you present and they can't engage in a rational conversation. Again, the, the term is a red flag. And so when you're a healthy person and you're trying to engage in rational conversation with members of your community so that you can go forward together, working together, dealing with uh, problems that communities face, um, and, and you can't get through to these people, I could just go on and on. I have another story about uh, working at my local radio station where um, you know, the rules stipulated that there was supposed to be a, a community committee, a committee of the members of the radio station that determined programming, and somehow just a handful of people had um, taken control, and only the program director behind closed doors decided what shows she was going to publish, and clearly it was just understood that if you strayed from the narrative, and this was an NPR station, so... Uh, you know, if you strayed too far from the NPR narrative, you were just kind of considered a kook or a crazy person, and uh, ultimately you would be censored. And this kind of passive-aggressive censorship is just ubiquitous uh, across uh, communities, across the United States, across the world. You're just not allowed to, to uh, talk against the mainstream narrative, the government corporate narrative. And so how, what's going on, and how do we deal with this? Uh, and so I had George on the show because his background in family therapy and clinical psychology uh, just uh, really uh, allowed him and then the two of us to have this conversation that I think describes it uh, the best that it can be described, which is as an abusive relationship. If we look at the psychology of patriarchy, I, I have a theory about how these are patriarchal societies, and this is a characteristic of a patriarchal society where you have a leadership class, an elite class, that is in control. They're displaying clearly sociopathic, narcissistic behavioral patterns, uh, and they impose their beliefs on those beneath them. Of course, back in the Middle Ages, you know, the feudal lords with the divine right of kings would just uh, throw you in the in the dungeon, or you'd be burned at the stake for being a witch for having ideas outside of uh, the mainstream. And now, uh, it seems they've refined these psychological techniques so that the way that we're educated, the way when we have jobs, um, one of the things I don't think we got in, in too in-depth in, because people want to say to you, well, surely all doctors aren't in on the conspiracy, or all journalists aren't participating in the conspiracy, and they, you know, people would, wouldn't, if this was true, then they'd be reporting on it in the mainstream news, or, or the doctors would be subscribing hydroxychloroquine, and you're not an expert, so you can't say uh, one way or the other, well, I am an expert at making decisions for my own life, I can decide what kind of healthcare treatments I, I want to take, and I want... And I can decide what journalistic sources uh, I think are the most accurate. Um, but it's not even about... It, what it's about is this: the corporate system is, is patriarchal. It's hierarchical. So these journalists and these doctors are following orders. What do we hear about Nazi Germany? Well, those soldiers were following orders. That's why things got so crazy. That's why nobody stood up against the tyranny. Well, why is everybody following orders? You know, these doctors are going to lose their jobs. We have an example of a doctor standing up for the hydroxychloroquine treatment when she went public. Dr. Simone Gold, she lost her job. What happens to journalists that uh, don't want to write stories that simply regurgitate the government corporate narrative? 
well, they lose their job and it's passive aggressive. I ended up leaving the radio station because I, I couldn't uh, work in that kind of an, an oppressive environment. And that's just the thing. It's become a passive aggressive form of censorship. And so many people, uh, so many people engage in, they have this belief system that they just believe because it's been handed to them by the, by the authority figures. And if you break outside of that, that, that belief system, you literally trigger them into a fight or flight mode. They're no longer capable of acting rationally. They just have to put you down and shut you up. And so, you know, I did an interview many years ago on the Thursday morning report. You can check that out at the website, www.theshiftnow.com uh, under free content. And it was about this book, Political Ponerology, where he described that only less than 5% of the people have to believe in the corporate narrative. It was a psychologist. He lived in Romania, and he witnessed the end of World War II and then the way that the communists, the Red Army, came in and took control of Romania, and then he lived behind the Iron Curtain for another, what, 30 years or so. And he was describing how could they take over. It only took 5% of the people to believe the state propaganda and to be manipulated, brainwashed in this way uh, to want to turn in your neighbor or to shut up your neighbor. These people would invariably find themselves in these middle management positions. And if you worked under them, there was no way that you could come out and be a whistleblower without losing your job. Uh, without being humiliated in public. I've done an interview here uh, just recently with Mark Jeftovic about the cancel culture, right? We're experiencing all of these same things right now. We're experiencing gaslighting from the mainstream media where they'll compare over and over again the case fatality rate for COVID against the infection fatality rate for flu. And everybody goes, oh my God, well, the, uh, you know, COVID is so dangerous. So it's so dangerous. We've been shown this over and over and over again. And they're not questioning, why can't we find out the infection fatality rate of COVID and compare it to the flu? Why aren't they doing the statistics similarly to the way they do the statistics for the flu so we can actually get a comparison? And when you bring this up, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to talk about it. The experts in the government and the corporate hierarchy are telling the truth. And if you speak out, then, you know, the cancel culture will shut you down. <laughs> you know, if you say the wrong thing on Twitter, the next thing you know, you're going to get banned. Um, and so having George on the show to explain what is going on, uh, I think it's important to really realize, even if you're raised in a healthy family, if you're going to a, a, into a school situation where parroting the party line gets you an A... And questioning the party line gets you an F. That is a, a trauma response. You're getting inflicted emotional pain if you don't do if you don't believe what you're told, and you're getting a reward if you do do what you're told. And so this is a classic form of behavioral conditioning. You guys can read up on on the work of B. F. Skinner, which is the foundation of of modern public education where he talks about operant behavioral conditioning. So we go through this system 12 years of our life in public education, and we're conditioned to do to believe what the authority figure tells us. And to buck the system requires a lot of emotional strength, and some of us have been able to do that, and the rest of us just cannot hear it. 
you know, the rest of us are going to clearly think that that fight or flight response, as soon as you say, hey, the authority figure's not telling me the truth, then um, they're suddenly, their Stockholm Syndrome is going to kick in and they're not going to be able to uh, identify with anything other than what the authority figure, the big brother figure, the father figure is telling them is true. Uh, they absolutely believe that their captor, their enslaver, uh, their slave master is the is actually the person that they're learning how to self-identify with. This is the person who takes care of me. They actually care about me. Yeah, sure, you know, I have to pay a lot in taxes. Sure, sometimes we have to go into lockdown. Yeah, we have to wear a mask. You know, but that but but you know, Big Brothers, he's not abusive. He's he's there to to protect me and help me. Uh, and it just blinds people from the fact that behind the curtain there are these billionaires controlling these organizations, these public-private partnerships that are that are being very controlling over all of our lives, and they don't have our best interests at heart. So I hope that you enjoyed this interview with George Roche. I think the information is really helpful. Uh, it helps to explain why people can't engage in rational conversation when you bring these topics up, and hopefully it points to... Um, a way to understand it uh, around emotional health, right? I mean, it's it's challenging. Um, it's challenging to try to change people on this level. It's easy to get frustrated. It's easy to get angry. That's only going to trigger people more. Uh, we have to learn how to deal with this with compassion. Uh, and also understand that while it takes 5% to shut us down, it only takes 5% to turn things around as well. So uh, if you can just wake up one or two people uh, here and there, if you can just make yourself available and have them come to you when they start to see that things don't make sense, when they start to see that a building doesn't fall at free fall speed if it's pancaking, only if the structure has been destroyed underneath can a building fall at free fall speed into its own footprint, right? Um, you know, and of course, countless other examples uh, like that, where people believe, you know, hey, there needs to be a plane in the Pentagon, not just an empty hole. We should see some kind of debris there if there was actually a plane. <laughs> but this is how they can cast a spell over humanity, and this is how they get people to follow uh, to follow them. I believe that, uh, you know, these these patriarchal institutions have been engaged in this kind of a psychological manipulation for thousands of years, and they've actually perfected and refined it uh, through a, a lineage of knowledge of how to do this, uh, passed down from, from uh, you know, king to king uh, and uh, corporate CEO to corporate CEO uh, for a long period of time here. So this is what we're up against, uh, but remember the solution is to have compassion uh, and be extremely patient. Uh, and really to wait for people to come to you and when they ask questions to be there to uh, help teach them what's going on. So thanks you all for listening. Uh, I hope you, you're taking something from this in terms of uh, how we can make a positive impact on our community. Uh, and I hope that it explains to you why things are the way they are uh, and how to, how to react without getting frustrated and without feeling angry. Uh, and without feeling isolated, because there are intelligent people out there who see what's going on, and we uh, and we can uh, continue to fight the good fight. So, uh, thanks for checking this out. Again, hope you got something from it. I just want to remind you that you can find out more about George Roche and his work with The Line Canada. 
Uh, you can actually go to thelinecanada.com or www.thelineinternational.com. And of course, you can find out more about The Shift at The Shift with Doug McKinty on YouTube and Facebook. I am at www.theshiftnow.com on the web, at D McKinty on Twitter. Uh, and remember to like and subscribe and share if you find these videos uh, or the podcast uh, anywhere out there. I am getting pretty heavily shadow banned. So uh, the podcast is basically distributed through you guys. You can also check out my other work at Transparent Media Truth on YouTube or www.transparentmediatruth.com where I do the roundtable discussions as well, uh, trying to get the word out, trying to... Uh, interview as many as many experts and professionals as I can so that we can uh, continue to fight this information war. So uh, thanks again to you all for checking us out. I'll be back again next week with an interview with Dr. Thomas Cowan talking about his book, The Contagion Myth. So um, you all have a great day and uh, I'll talk to you again next week. Take care. <music>